I'm delighted to introduce as our next speaker, Professor Christiane Tietz, who teaches systematic theology in Zurich, uh, where she's also director of the Institute uh, for Hermeneutics and Philosophy of Religion. Christiane Tietz, and you may know that, has made a name for herself extensively in the field of Bonhoeffer studies, where she both as a scholar and also as an organizer, because for a decade or so, she was part of the leadership of the International Bonhoeffer Society. But over the past years, she has also distinguished herself as a BART scholar. Some of you may have um, um, been privy to her um, talk at one of the AR uh, conferences that made some waves, I guess, where she gave a careful, almost excruciatingly sensitive reconstruction of the dynamics of the triangular relationship between Carl, Nellie, and Charlotte, so Carl and Nellie, Bart and Charlotte um, von Kirschbaum. Um, she has just written a new biography of Bart that some of you may have noticed already if you're looking at the German-speaking publications. If you don't, then you're lucky because the translation will come out with Oxford University Press in, the, in January, we're confident. Um, um, it is a very extensive, detailed, rigorous piece of scholarship. Those uh, who are fortunate to study with Professor Tietz as doctoral students know that she has very high standards because she makes uh, doctoral students actually work through the whole system, uh, um, church dogmatics of BART for a whole year before they're allowed to pick up their pen and start writing their thesis. Um, so that is also reflected in her own work, this kind of rigor. Um, and you will see this in, on every page of the biography. Um, what sets Christianity's work apart here is also that she uses this kind of rigorous scholarship to make room for Bart's own voice. Um, so maybe after a first generation after Bart was very much marked by students or maybe disciples of Bart and another generation that especially in Germany was also very much marked by very critical, um, to say the least, uh, reception of Bart's work or historicizing reconstructions. She's using the historical distance also to give room uh, for a new reading, a fresh reading um, of Bart's own voice and to make it heard. You can really notice on every page that she's interested primarily in understanding Bart before uh, starting to interpret him. So you get a very sympathetic but not uncritical reading of Bart where you can really learn a lot about the man and his theology. So I'm delighted to welcome Christiane Tietz um, to give a lecture um, titled Standing on the boundary where the now and yet then touch each, each other, Bart on theodicy and eschatology. Thank you very much for your kind introduction and thank you very much for inviting me to Princeton. It's a pleasure to be here again. It has been an often criticism of Karl Barth's theology that it, do, it does not leave enough room for complaint and lament and that Barth's reflection on human suffering and on the salvation of the world take place on the upper floor not considering any empirical dimension of the presence of God in the world. It seems as if Bart was almost shrunken by the beauty of God's grace 
and thus was not able to realize the ugliness of this world in which we live. It seems as if Barth's theology does not allow any suffering from worldly imperfection and evil. How different is Martin Luther's approach to suffering and evil? Luther was able to speak of dark sides of God, and he suffered intensely from the world and from God's absence. Luther's theology leaves room for lament, for fights against God, against his absence and invisibility. Luther's theology is down to earth through and through. For a closer discussion of Barth's position on theodicy, I could analyze Barth's reflections in his church dogmatics and unfold his concept of Schattenseiten der Schöpfung and of das Nichtige. Yet this has already been done by many, for example, by Scott Rodden, Wolf Krötke, and Matthias Wüttrich. In this paper, I will try a different approach. Questions of theodicy can be discussed in doctrinal works, but in fact, they arise in concrete lives of concrete human beings. Theologians are confronted with them in situations of pastoral care. We don't have protocols of some of Barth's counseling work, of course, but we have his sermons, which spoke into concrete situations of happy but also suffering, of grateful but also lamenting human beings. Barth's sermons wants, wanted to help people to get along with what is happening in their life. Sermons show Barth as a practitioner of pastoral care. For a better, more contextual understanding of Barth's so often criticized dealing with the evil of the world, I will in this paper solely focus on Barth's sermons. I will pay special attention to that sermon which Barth gave in the aftermath of one of the most horrible events in his life, the death of his son Matthias, and will in that take a closer look at Barth's personal search for comfort. My analysis of this text will be as close as possible as undertaken with a magnifier glass. This sermon is especially interesting for the topic of our conference, as Bart here is responding to the question of theodicy from an eschatological perspective. Occasionally, my analysis of this sermon will be enriched through other sermons in which Bart clarified one or the other motive. Yet, consolation is only one aspect when confronted with evil. Longing for justice is another. Therefore, my paper will close with a glance on a sermon of Bart on the Last Judgment. My first part, the now. Only a few weeks after Karl Barth's son Matthias had started to study theology in spring 1941, he and a friend went to a climbing tour in the Alps to a peak called Frundenhorn. The rope party fell from the rock. While his friend was injured only a little, Karl Barth's son suffered a fractured skull. One day later, on June 22nd, Matthias Barth died at the age of only 20 in the hospital. At the funeral after the burial of his son, Karl Barth preached. How was Barth doing? In a letter to Arthur Fry, written on the 2nd of July, so a few days after the funeral, Barth seemed strangely calm. He wrote to Fry, above all, I want to thank you personally for the sympathy which you expressed with the sad event which affected us last week. This matter upset me, maybe especially because Matthias, even if he was 20 years old, hasn't really left the nest, but was only quite dreamily on the way to real life. I myself did the sermon for him. Maybe you read it once to later see how everything was. 
Now life must go on. Bart continues immediately. There is not much to say about Brunner. The content of his letter is so blah, 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 and he's just starting again theological stuff. Bart's letter makes one wondering about his emotions. Didn't he feel any lament, any anger, any desperation? He who was so emotional in many other settings, why was he not emotional here? Did he not love his son? Did he suppress how he felt? Or were these times in which people of a certain education were used to not show sadness and desperation? Before judging Bart too quickly, let's read another letter. To his old friend from school days, Wilhelm Spöndlin, Bart had written a few days earlier much more emotionally. This disease of our Matthias, which came so unexpectedly, upset me more than any other death so far. Bart also expresses his own need for consolation when he added, it was a great help to me to give a sermon myself. Before analyzing Bart's sermon itself, it's interesting to have a look at a letter of Charlotte von Kirschbaum during the same days. How was she describing Bart's mood at that time? And I'm not doing this for an apology of Bart, but as proof of, for my claim that his sermon at the funeral of his son treats the question of theodicy in, in a pastoral and personal context. Charlotte von Kirschbaum wrote to Gertrud Steven, who was a close friend of the family, at the end of June 1941, in detail about the accident, and then adds, the father hold the held the funeral himself in Bubendorf, and he consoled us and himself. It struck him at the roots. And two days I was very worried, but now he is himself again. These few sentences, I think, express how much the event shocked Bart. For his sermon, Bart chose a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see through a mirror in a dark word, yet then we will see face to face. Bart chose this mysterious word first of all because Matthias already as a child liked it a lot. But the verse also fit the aim of this funeral service, which Bart described quite clearly at the beginning of his sermon. I quote, we are here to place what happened and our Matthias and ourselves, who so strongly would like to call for him in the comforting and liberating light of the word of God. The verse from the first Corinthians connects the situation of the mourners and the light of God's word as it connects the now and the yet then. It makes clear that the current situation is one in a special temporal pair. Let's have a closer look at Bart's description of the first element of this temporal pair, Bart unfolds. We now live this life with all, quote, its hopes, weaknesses, and mysteries. And then the, the now is the situation of seeing everything in a mirror. In this mirror, Bart as we see everything reverse or wrong. So in the now, we might have a word for explaining what has happened but it is, quote, a dark word, which perhaps gives, gives us an answer, but at the same time remains the most difficult question. So this means any human answer to the question of the Odyssey, which we might find today, does not really solve the problem, but causes more questions. Let me explain this insight a bit more concretely. 
Classically, the question of theology is, of theodicy is put in the form, if there's an almighty, all-good, all-knowing God, how then can there be so much suffering in the world? How can the existence of suffering and the existence of such a God go together? The, an answer to this question can either work on the predicates of God, God is not almighty, therefore he might have wanted to, but could not help Matthias when he stumbled. Or God is not all good, therefore he could have helped Matthias, but he didn't want to. Or God is not all-knowing, therefore he could have helped Matthias and wanted to, but did not know of his stumbling. All these solutions raise new, even more severe questions. What kind of God would that be? If God isn't all good, how could we love God? If God isn't almighty, how is God then able to save and finally redeem the world? If God isn't all-knowing, how could we trust in God's care? An answer to the general question of the oddity could also work on the suffering of the world, which means it could try to make the evil less evil, as Otto Marquardt put that. Any position which recalls a higher plan of God or which explains the benefit which one can reap of suffering, for example, by becoming more mature, belongs to this type of answer. But if one responded to the death of Matthias Bart with the idea that his parents should become more mature, then this would sound cynic. And the question arises why Matthias himself did not have the chance to become more mature. Or if one responded that his death belongs to God's plan as it is God's punishment, for example, for Karl Barth because he was so unfair to many of his theological colleagues, then this would sound unfair to Matthias as he is not responsible for his father's behavior. And the question arises why God does not also punish others who did even more horrible things than Barth, for example, murder human beings in concentration camps. Bart obviously is hesitant about any of these human answers to the question of theodicy when stating, now, every answer to the question of theodicy is, is a dark word, which leads to more difficult questions. So much for the moment about the now. My second part, the yet then. Bart argues in his sermon that this now is always connected with the yet then. Then we will be recognized by God and we will fully recognize God. Then, quote, we will see everything in clarity and everything will be glory. Here we need to pause for a while to realize how Bart differs from other Christian responses to the question of theodicy, from one other response. This other response agrees to the insolubility of theodicy by human answers now, but emphasizes its eternal insolubility as well. This response was given by the Catholic theologian Karl Rahner. Rahner sees the incomprehensibility of suffering now as part of the incomprehensibility of God, which will remain even in the eschaton. Rahner states, I quote, God is the incomprehensible mystery, now and in all eternity, even then when we will see God face to face. Even then there will be the frightful glory of the incomprehensible deity unveiled and eternal. The incomprehensibility of suffering is part of the incomprehensibility of God." End of quote. For Rane, the idea of revelation is as important as for Barth, but with the concept of God as eternally incomprehensible, Rane's God recedes into the distance and actually problematizes Rane's interest in revelation. 
Bard instead stresses that in eternity we will recognize God and we will see in clarity. This sounds quite similar to the solution of Martin Luther to the question of theodicy. The traditional question of theodicy, why the believers suffer, why the evildoers prevail, actually is not, not, a really, not a real issue for Luther. Luther argues that there is an afterlife which God grants only to the believer. Luther calls this an insight given by the light of grace. The real question of theodicy arises for Luther because God does not give every human being the chance to become a believer, as God does not elect all. In Luther's debate with Erasmus of Rotterdam on the bondage of the will, Luther finds the answer in the hope that in eternity, in the light of glory, we will understand that it was righteous of God not to elect all. This light of glory differs from the light of grace, that not everybody is elected can simply not be an expression of grace. In Luther's theology, the merciful God and the electing but finally just God act differently. Like Luther, Barth refers to, the, to God's glory when considering eternity. There, everything will be glory. But Barth does not contrast grace and glory. For him, God's grace precisely is God's glory. Therefore, the key of understanding the eternal glory of God Sorry, uh, that, sorry. Therefore, the key of understanding the eternal glory of God is God's grace in Barth's theology. No explanation which contradicts God's grace can be accepted. Barth in his sermon, in fact, relates our suffering now and the seeing then through grace, I quote, because God's grace has come to our misery's aid through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, therefore it is such that the now and the yet then are united in every moment of our human life. So my third part, the unity of the now and the yet then in Christ. It's elucidating to have a closer look at how Barth describes this unity between the now and the yet then. Barth argues that they are united such that they cannot be separated anymore. Barth gives Christological reasons for this. In his painful death on the cross and his victorious resurrection, Christ bound the now and the yet then together. This binding at this certain historical point, point in history changes. The now, as well as the yet then, our reality as well as God's glory. In every now, the yet then is present, and in every yet then, and every yet then relates to a concrete now. Put more concretely, there are two dynamics in Barth's sermon. The first dynamic of this unity means that through Christ's death and resurrection, there is, quote, already now, no mirror and no dark word behind which it is not behind which is not the clarity of seeing face to face. While this sounds a bit pathetic, Barth describes the second dynamic of this unity quite concrete. I quote, no single ray of the future glory of God will be something different than a particular reversal and adjustment of the mirror image in front of which we are now standing, a particular solution of this mysterious word which we now try to spell out. I want to draw your attention to two points. First, the future of God obviously is not abstract. It's not on the upper floor with no connection to our current reality. Every single future ray connects to our now. And second, 
This ray of God's glory will be at work in two different ways. It might correct how we saw things now, or it might also solve some of our current riddles. With leaving this open, Bart does not argue we always see things wrong when complaining and suffering. We might see them right. Bart describes this unity of now and then through the met metaphor of boundary. It is the boundary where the now and the then touch each other. Through Christ's grace, he adds, we are able to stand on this boundary. Through Christ's grace, we are allowed to believe, to love, and to hope on this boundary. This life at the, on the boundary is possible because of, special, of the special contrafactual dynamics which is caused by the eschatological reality. I quote again, this is the boundary where the light always falls into the dark, where life always triumphs over death. This eschatological cause contrafactual dynamic concludes in an emphatic and yet in our present. This and yet is to be distinguished from, from a mere and, which would describe an equilibrium between two objects. Bart's and yet stresses that the then is stronger than the now. The then of the, of the future is so strong that it also changes the present of, to, sorry, it, that it also changed the present to some and yet, in which the eschatological reality already gets space in our current life. This is the particular eschatological dynamic. The future is stronger than the, presence, and than the present, and we are already standing at the boundary to this future, which already shines into the present. Bart explains, through Christ's grace, we are standing on the boundary, and now I quote, where we are big sinners and yet justified, where we are imprisoned and yet free, where we don't see any way out and yet have hope, where we doubt and yet are certain, where we cry and yet are happy. To me, it's interesting that Bart, even in this eschatological dynamic, actually acknowledges the fact of seeing no way out, of doubt and of tears. Now we don't see any way out, now we doubt and cry. Bart does not forbid these natural human reactions. He does not say, but we should not doubt and cry as there is God's reality. He accepts doubts and tears, yet combines them dialectically with a different perspective, which comes through God's eschatological light and life, the perspective of hope, certainty, and happiness. Where does this eschatological dynamic come from? Bart unfolds it in another sermon held at Easter 1959 in the prison of Basel. But he explains the meaning of this eschatological yet when interpreting Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, yet the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Bart says, and I quote, death, yet life. Let's have a look at the word yet. Death and life are not simply two words, times, idea, terms, ideas. What is described here is a path, a story which took place in our Lord Jesus Christ at Easter, in his rise from the, death, from the dead. Then once and for all it took place in him, but already then for us, so that what happened then is also our story, dead, yet life, eternal life. 
At the boundary, the eschatological dynamic of the yet, then of life with God gives our current life an eschatological drift as well, the drift of the and yet. Now my fourth part, now and yet then in relation to Matthias Bard's death. In his funeral sermon, Bard unfolds this eschatological dynamic quite concretely. I quote Bard. When we think of our Matthias, we don't want to position ourselves at another place than precisely this boundary, end of quote. But explains this boundary. Matthias is beyond this boundary and the mourners are still in front of the boundary. Standing at this boundary lets the mourners be closer to Matthias. For they are standing at this boundary only through and in Jesus Christ. And, I quote Bart, in Jesus Christ there is no distance of now and then, of over here and over there. In Jesus Christ there is a simultaneity of times and places as, as his cross and resurrection connects them all. In Jesus Christ, Bart continues, there's also a transformation of Matthias. Matthias now is in Christ as the person as he was, wie er lebte und lebte, but this changes Matthias totally. As a consequence, this Matthias who now is in Christ is present to the mourners also totally changed. As Christoph Schwebel unfolded already yesterday, in the afterlife, the human being still being constant in his or her identity is becoming totally different. But then explains that for Matthias, the first half of the verse, for now we see through a mirror in a dark world, had a very concrete meaning as this young man saw earthly things this way, with his fantasy, with his dreaming like a child which let him live in some distance to the real world, with his longing which made him forget space and time, and which led him into the mountains. At this point of his sermon, Bart explains what the yet then means for the death of Matthias. But now for him, this yet then, this is again a quote from Bart, but now for him, this yet then, on the other side of the mirror and the dark world is already true. Now he is seeing what he in our now obviously only thought to see, only wanted to see from face to face, recognizing God and all things in the same way in which God has recognized him from eternity, end of quote. Matthias, now being in Jesus' arm and lap, knows much better than his fathers and his brothers, Bart Ed. Bart reminds his listeners warm-heartedly of Matthias' eyes. I quote again, we still see them clearly before us, this eyes so full of wishing, always, always looking a bit unsatisfied, and after, then after all, immediately shining for a while, end of quote. In the yet then, his eyes are filled with glory and he's seeing totally different. But obviously is convinced that eternal life with God is a very concrete reality, embracing the individual in his or her individuality. From the mourner's perspective, this life is a yet then, but from Matthias' perspective, it is a now already. In Bart's view, the first half of the verse from 1 Corinthians also describes the relationship between Matthias and his family and friends quite well. As Matthias, I quote Bart again, in his deeds and attitude was for us not rarely a mirror and a dark word, not quite transparent in what he really wanted, end of quote. He appeared to his family and friend, Bart says, 
as a wanderer from the distance and into the distance. We saw him come and now go again." End of quote. How he died strangely forbade fit to his attitude towards life. I quote again, he was allowed to be and to remain the wanderer who he always was. For his family and his friends, Bart describes this death not as the end of Matthias' life, but as the event in which, I quote again, the great yet then all of a sudden came into his life, end of quote. What unfolds the meaning of Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection for Matthias and the mourners quite concretely? I quote again in some length. We only have to recognize Jesus Christ, who was crucified and rose again also for him, to understand our Matthias and his short wandering by, which was so enigmatic, correctly to understand where from he came and where he was off to. Now we don't see him and his surprising way anymore, because he has disappeared from our sight, entering into the glare of the resurrection of his and our Lord. But we see this glare and in this glare who and what our Matthias was, a human being with his limits and mistakes, a poor sinner as we all, but more than this, a human being who God in heaven wanted to call God's child. Jesus Christ wanted to call his brother a human being for whom the Son of God has given himself so that he, the unexperienced one, does not get lost but have eternal life. End of quote. In accordance to his theological approach, Bart changes the perspective from the sorrow of the mourners and the joys and problems of human life to the reality of God. More relevant than anything else is this reality of God and human community with God. This is why the world with all its shady sides was made. In a short speech on the occasion of the death of his brother-in-law, Karl Lind, in 1948, Bart argued quite similarly. We cannot open God's book in which the meaning of this life is written, but through Jesus Christ, we are allowed to hear its title and content, forgiveness for lost sinners, and rest for the very and heavenly burdened. But it continues, we are not able to check the plan of this life, but, another quote, through, this, through the same Jesus Christ, we are allowed to hear about its beginning and its end. So Bart is not answering detailed questions about the meaning of Carlin's life, but God's relation to Carlin in any way remains clear. One might want to criticize this as a very withdrawn theology which deals only with spiritual riches matters. But for Bart, this reality of Matthias with God, who has loved Matthias, has very concrete earthly consequences in the now of the mourners. If the mourners seek and see Matthias in this yet then of God, then this will change their view of Matthias' life. I quote again. Then. We have now already understood him, belatedly as much as necessary for us. Then we belatedly cannot be surprised that we have loved him so much already now, in spite of everything, as he was from the very beginning until the end. This might sound a bit romantic and maybe could be said about someone who died as an old man. So is Bart not reflecting the question of the Odyssey which rises through Matthias' premature death? Bart does. 
He calls this premature death, I quote again, a mirror, a dark word, often especially frightening and painful manner. But then describes the last days of his son and the days after Matthias' death, these, I quote again, bitter hours and days of inner goodbye, of retrospective questions, whether we, when we still had him, didn't owe him too much, the strong wishes to hold him by his hand, what he liked so much, only once more to say him once again a good word, end of quote. In these remarks we encounter, if I may say that, the emotional Bart, who is aware of his sad feelings and longings, but adds that the death is a great pitiless mystery which none of our questions, wishes, and thoughts will resolve. My fifth part, the power of death. Interestingly, Bart does not hold God responsible for the fate of Matthias. It is death in all its power and strength which did this. Yet in a later sermon in March 1959 at Easter, Bart makes clear that this power of death does not only come into play when someone dies at a young age. This power of death is present in every death. Bart explains that death relates to our sin and therefore is the reward of our sin. Death is, I quote Bart, the great no, which stands as a heavy dark shadow above all our human life, namely the judgment, you human, your life, or what you think is your life, has no meaning. It has no right and therefore also can have no continuance. Death means that this no is pronounced on us. Death means we can only pass and become ruined, turn to dust and ashes, end of quote. Bart in his Easter sermon connects this death with the death of Jesus who died to let this our story be his story. Through Jesus Christ's death we are included into a new story, into a one-way road, into eternal life. I quote again, eternal life is a human life lived with God in God's bright light. Eternal life as it comes from God and is preserved by God undeletably, a life which beyond its natural end through dying has lasting continuance. End of quote. This new life is not the consequence of human life, nor some reward or prize. It is, Bart says, God's gift of grace. This means, in my own words, that there is no causal relation between anything which happened in our life and God's response. Therefore, eternal life cannot be a response to our questions of theodicy. Very different from Luther, who argues that eternal life is the response to the standard question of theodicy, as the believers who now suffer will then have eternal life, but does not argue for such a connection. And he as well does not argue that eternal hell is the just reward for our unfaithful life, which Luther again does. But explains, I quote again, God does not settle us. God is a very great and noble Lord who has joy in just making a gift. Now to my sixth part, the relevance of the resurrection. In the sermon at the funeral of his son, Bart tells his listeners that during the last days he often considered the biblical David and how David reacted to the death of his child, to the death of his child. As soon as it had died, David stopped fasting and crying and said, can I make him come back? I will go to my child, but it will never come back to me. Bart expresses that he was astonished about this behavior of David 
Is he not, Bart says, a strangely heartless father? But Bart then explains that the perspective of the resurrection of the dead changes everything. I quote again, if there were no resurrection of the dead opened by Jesus Christ, then David might be called a strangely heartless father. But suffering, David's suffering, but continues, can not be removed by any means. There are, but insists, no human words which would justify not being sad anymore. The only reason for the end of our sadness is the inseparable connection between the dark now and the bright then of the resurrection. But then mentions Good Friday and compares the suffering and horror of the mourners now with the suffering and horror of Good Friday by saying that what they experience is out of all proportions to Good Friday. This could be understood as, a, as rude and harsh as if this comment would run down the suffering of the bards. But it could also be understood as inclusive. Even our suffering and horror, as hard as it might be, is like the suffering and horror of Jesus included in God's salvation work. But says explicitly, but now Christ is risen from the dead. The yet then, the kingdom of God in which Christ reigns now is inseparably connected with the now. In my words, it tackles the now of death. Bart insists, I quote again, the now of death is no particular kingdom anymore in which he would have to be particularly afraid which we would have to respect with questioning and lamenting, with crying and fasting. Again, Bart does not say we should not cry, we are not allowed to cry, but in his view, lamenting and crying should have, could have a dangerous tenor of respecting the power of death too much. Bart's sermon aims at realizing the deprivation of the power of death by emphasizing very concretely the reality of the resur resurrection of the dead. My seventh part, the dangerous tenor lament might have. That a dangerous tenor of, of sorry, that a dangerous tenor of lament which could lead to forgetting God's presence and grace actually is Bart's worry can be seen in a sermon on June 15, 1947, which Bart preached in post-war Germany about Psalm 55, verse 23, throw your burden on the Lord he will look after you and will not forever let the righteous remain in agitation. In 1947, Bart preached in a situation in which many sorrows burdened the German people. The effects of the Second World War were still heavy. Cities lay in ruins, hunger and poverty, social insecurity, and the fear of east-west conflict was everywhere. Bart begins his sermon with these sorrows. I quote, almost all human beings today my have, my, sorry, almost all human beings today have many burdens, things which really burden them, which almost knock them down. Question for fate why everything had to come this way. Questions for the future how everything is going to become. Bart adds a few more points which are closely related to the question of theodicy, but then he stops. We don't want to look closer into this abyss. We all know it as well as the poet of Psalm 55, but quotes the lament of the psalmist in length and then continues, we know this, don't we? But what we eventually don't know so well, this is the invitation, throw your burden on the Lord. 
This dynamic of Bart's sermon shows his view of human nature. Humans are, maybe with good reasons, usually occupied with lamenting and sorrows. To focus on lament would mean to forget looking at and listening to the gospel and the reality of Jesus Christ. To stick with lament only would mean to ignore that Jesus has already dealt with our sorrows. Far from leveling off human suffering, but wants us to change our perspective on suffering in view of Jesus. Jesus, says Bart, I quote, is the Lord of all those who have a burden. And he wants to be honored, praised, and worshiped through this, that we throw our burden on him. And to stick with Laman would, of course, mean not to throw our burden on him. This would especially mean to go behind what has happened on the cross. But unfold this, that on the cross already all burdens of all human beings of all times lay on Jesus. All of them, and I quote again, the big and the small ones, the proper and the foolish ones. Jesus had in his heart and therefore cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? End of quote. Jesus brought all of them to God. Therefore, throwing our burden on the Lord is nothing else than realizing that Jesus has already carried our burden. I quote again, throw your burden on, burden on the Lord means open your eyes and see where it lies already, who has already carried it and brought it to God. Let it be there. Don't touch it. Don't take it back, for it is not your own anymore. See, it would be a misuse of a thing which no longer is your own if you would let your burden gnaw at you like an evil cancer, end of quote. It is worth a note that Bart again does not aim at some suppression of one's sorrows. Quite sensitive for psychological dynamics, he adds in this sermon from 1947. I quote again, it would be a misuse if you revolt or are outraged against your burden, but it would also be a misuse if you throw it away, forget it, or oppress it. End of quote. It would actually simply be unrealistic, Bart explains. As long as we live, we have burdens. Life, human life, means having burdens, means to have to suffer from them. Bart just wants his listeners to keep their burdens where it right, their burden where it rightly is, at the cross of Jesus. This includes Bart stresses to trust that Jesus will take care of us. Bart says that this out quite concretely, and I quote him again. He will take care of you means that he will help us to have our burden, will help us to not be knocked down by it, will take care that we will not become desperate about our burden or not become a fool. He will even take care that you somewhere, in spite of everything, can be a human being who is a tiny little bit happy." End of quote. When you throw your burden on the Lord, Jesus makes you, but continues to his companion and comrade, there is his path to Golgotha, and you are here on your own journey through life. These are two completely different things, and yet they belong together. End of quote. Our carrying of our burden is connected to Jesus carrying, I quote again, you are allowed to carry your own life, like your own little cross behind him. And this means that you are allowed to go with him towards the light of Easter morning. End of quote. But unfolds this light vividly as the ultimate light of that day at which Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes when death, mourning, crying, and pain will be no more. As if Bart would address his critics who reproach him for talking too big here, 
Barth closes his sermon in 1947 with asking, who can tell another human being, throw your burden on the Lord? And who can and is permitted to say, he will take care of you? Barth confesses that he didn't say so because he found it in his own heart, but because he read it in the Bible in Psalm 55. And the poet of Psalm 55 hasn't found it in his own heart either, but as belonging to the people of Israel, he had heard the word of God. Bart concludes that the verse from Psalm 55, which he has unfolded in his sermon, only becomes true if God speaks this word to the believers. This is an important point for understanding Bart's approach to the question of theodicy. Even in doctrinal sentences, he doesn't want to speak from a reflexive distance. He always wants to make God's promise concrete. And to remain with alarmment would mean to forget this promise. In his sermon at the funeral of his son, Bart summarizes the consequence of Easter for the mourners. I quote again. David probably was right. Just there, where we have to give everything up for lost, we can, hidden underneath sighs and tears, which we are allowed to have, only rejoice as those who are permitted to taste, to taste that life which already now is waiting above all graves. My eighth point, my eighth point. Because of yet then, we cannot only be sad. The final paragraph of Bart's sermon might sound hard and insensitive, but please have in mind when listening to the following sentences from Bart's sermon at the funeral of his son, that this is not somebody speaking who teaches others abstractly about how to deal with their sadness. It is someone who himself tries to get along with what has happened also to him. Bart continues, and I quote, yet the then is very close to the now. Therefore, we today in all sadness can not only be sad. Bart seems to be aware that this expects too much of most of the people present at the funeral services. At the funeral service, he immediately changes the scenario, and I quote again, if we ourselves cannot rejoice, we nevertheless hear a very different voice rejoicing even above the evil spot at the Fründenhorn, that mountain where his son died, where everything happened, even above the grave from which we have just come. This voice speaks about the completion even of this unfinished one, of his completion which death as a servant of God has now realized. It speaks about peace and happiness. As we hear this voice, what can we do other than, be it then in tears, thank God that God meant it well and did it well with our Matthias in his life and in his dying. And the same with us. I am, says Jesus to us, I am the resurrection and the life. The dynamic of which Bart is speaking when approaching the question of the Odyssey from an eschatological perspective can be summarized as such. Bart tries to insert into the situation of lament and tears again and again God's reality. This reality is not some solution to the problem of theodicy argue making the evil less evil by saying this happened because of that for education or as punishment or as another result of Messiah's life, but does not at all respond on the level of worldly events. 
But Charles, the eyes of the listeners towards heaven, towards the kingdom of God, as he believes Matthias is eternally with God, in a way which transforms his, soul, his son's whole life. But is stressing that human beings can expect everything from God, yet not in this world which is ambivalent and has its shady sides, but in the communion with God. Here the human being will find his or her home and also him or herself. In his funeral sermon, Bart makes clear that this very concrete hope changes also the now, which has no all-embracing power anymore. Bart invites his listeners to change the focus of their attention. They should focus on the reality set up through Christ. Ingolf Dalfert called this Bart's eschatological realism and described its dynamic beautifully. I quote Dalfert, the eschatological reality of the resurrection which Christians confess in the credo has ontological and criterological priority over the experiential reality which we all share. The truth claims of the Christian faith are the standards by which we are to judge what is real and vice versa. What has been said so far might eventually be considered helpful in situations of the malum physicum of some natural event, but what about evil deeds of other humans, the so-called malum morale, which causes questions of the odyssey as well? Now I'm coming to my last part, standing in front of the judgment seat of God. In a prison sermon of 1963, Bart spoke to the prisoners about the last judgment. It's interesting to note that Bart starts with the prisoners and his own experience of being sentenced by a human judge. If you want, to, you can call this a link, an Anknüpfungspunkt for the gospel. But nevertheless, stresses quickly that this human judgment is almost ridiculous in comparison to the last judgment. The topic of the last judgment, of course, had strong ties to the question of the Odyssey. Will then, at least then, God be just in punishing the wrongdoers and in this be finally justified? Let me at the end of my paper dwell at this sermon. But mentions that then the light of God will illuminate even the most hidden corners of our life. This will lead to a judgment over our life, Bart says, and I quote, the falling light will show if our life in its details and as a whole was honest or mendacious, beautiful or awful, lived in love or in indifference or hate, if it was useful or a useless life. End of quote. This is the final crisis where it comes to a final separation, Scheidung, far away from undifferentiated grace which would level out all differences between human beings and would treat murderers equally to their victims, Bart argues that at this moment a decision will take place about, quote, who and what we were, whether we will so come to stand on the right, the good, or on the left, the evil side, end of quote. Bart is convinced that at the last judgment, wrong deeds will be named as such. Relating to the experiences of the prisoners, he adds that there will be no, I quote again, conditional convictions, possibilities for appeals, early releases, by the way, also no subsequent offenses. But makes it very clear that nobody, nobody can actually stand up to this judgment. But then Bart stresses who the judge will be, Jesus Christ, 
we have to appear, I quote again, not in front of the throne of some most high unknown cosmic judge, like that whom heavens invented in fear and trembling. No, in front of that one who has loved us from eternity. And then in his birth in the stable of Bethlehem and in his death on the cross of Golgotha, and who has drawn us to him only out of kindness. In front of that one in which God concluded God's covenant with us human beings and kept it faithfully and fulfilled it. This will be our, our judge. The light which will fall on everything will be his light and the work, the work of separation will be his work and the judgment will be his. What sounds already comforting is used by Bart instead to make the scenario even more serious because everything with which human beings have done wrong in their life against God as well as against their neighbors was a wrongdoing against Jesus. In all their evil deeds they have lived, Bart uh, says, just as his enemies. Bart continues that this can be a comforting message only when we trust in the fact that Jesus forgave exactly so those who sinned against him, that Jesus loved just his enemies. Bart calls this comfort a costly comfort. Costly because we have to realize that we have lived our life as Christ's enemies. We should not too quickly speak about God's grace, for it is our task to acknowledge that the left side is the side where we belong. But Bart uh, then unfolds Jesus, the, the judge also stood where we all should have stood. He stood at the left side under God's death sentence. In standing at our side, Christ will also be our attorney who will win this trial. No condemnation will follow. God's grace is God's glory. Will the God Bart preaches be just at the final judgment? Will God react adequately to human evildoers? One will have to say no if one expects God to condemn some especially evil human beings to eternal hell. But would this not first of all have to be me? Will the God Bart preachers be just at the final judgment? Will God react adequately to human evildoers? One will have to say yes, if God's justice can be seen in this honest, costly, and transparent judgment over our evil deeds. Bart concludes his prison sermon with stressing that there are very serious reasons for being afraid of that last judgment at which we will be judged. But there are also reasons to rejoice in face of this judgment because Christ will be our judge. The word which God spoke to us through Jesus Christ is both, I quote Bart again, so severe but also so friendly, so humbling but also so uplifting. Thanks for your attention.